The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1. So we're going to continue this week. Uh, the sermon series we began last week is called Extravagant, and we're talking about living generously in light of the gospel. And so last week, uh, we talked about David and Ornan. Uh, David takes a census, is displeasing to God because his motives were prideful in doing it, and uh, there's a plague, and then uh, God instructs David to go to this certain place and, and get a hold of this threshing floor that Ornan owns uh, and to make a sacrifice to God there. And that place ends up being the site of the temple. Uh, we see uh, the fact that Ornan and his sons, they just glimpse the angel of the Lord. And we see this just extravagantly generous response where he says, David comes and says, hey, I need to buy this. God wants me to offer sacrifices here. Ornan says, no, just take it. Take the threshing floor. Take all the tools. Take all my business. Here's some oxen too. And here's the wheat I've been working on. Just take all that and offer that to the Lord. Uh, I've seen but a glimpse of his glory, and um, I want to worship him. And so David, of course, says, no, I'm not going to do that. I won't offer something to God that didn't cost me anything. And so just a beautiful set of scriptures and a beautiful story for us to begin to understand the heart of gratitude and what a response uh, to the goodness and the magnificence of God looks like. So we're going to pick up on that theme today in Acts 9, and uh, we're going to read quite a few scriptures here, uh, which I know won't be a problem because you guys are all Bible folks. So we're going to read the, just the first 22 verses here of Acts 9, and essentially we're just laying the groundwork um, to see here the conversion of uh, Saul into uh, the Apostle Paul, okay? So we're in Acts 9. I'm going to start in verse 1. Here we go. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Praise God. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting. We see uh, up till about verse 18, it's describing this experience that, that Saul has, right? So he's on the road. He's headed to do what he thinks is the mission of God, which is to uh, essentially bring bound anybody that's preaching this heresy that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, doesn't like that message, doesn't believe it, and, and, and thinks that he's a false prophet. And so he's heading to do that. Jesus interrupts that plan, right? Shows up. Uh, knocks him down, has a word, and uh, we see that then uh, God sends Ananias. Uh, it's, it's pretty obvious God is still involved in what's going on. He gets up, eat, is strengthened, and then it's, it's very interesting. Verse 20, and immediately, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Here's what I want you to see in this. Paul's whole life and mission changes after he meets Jesus. This is not some minimal event in his life. This is not, uh, you know, he, he raised his hand at a, at a, at a crusade and, and not much else changed. This was absolutely, uh, absolutely, all, just it altered the complete navigation of his life. He was headed in one direction, now he's headed the exact opposite. And so there is no question whatsoever that, uh, that, that Paul was, was absolutely drastically affected by his meeting with Jesus. So what I want to do is look together uh, at some of the effects, the clear effects of Paul meeting the Lord Jesus. I want to read this to you. I'm going to, don't turn here. I'm just going to read it to you. Acts 20, verses 33 through 35. You can write it down if you want to look at it later. What this is is part of Paul's farewell address to the pastors of the Ephesian church. These are men he had discipled and lived in community with, okay? So what I'm doing, first of all, we laid the groundwork to just in case anybody didn't know or maybe we just needed to brush up on the fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote the two-thirds of the New Testament, used to be a guy named Saul that persecuted God's church, okay? So Jesus comes and says, you're going to work for me now. And he's like, yes, I am, right? Because when Jesus shows up and says anything right in your face, uh, if you're any kind of smart, yes, sir, is the answer, right? So that's what he does. And, uh, and now we're going to start to see some of the outworkings of what happens when, when Paul's life is gripped um, by the power and the love of God. So Paul is giving a farewell address to, uh, right before he jumps on a boat to the pastors of the Ephesian church. These are guys he loved, guys that really loved him. They end up crying at the end as he gets on the boat. But here's part of what he says to them. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner... You must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
These verses, along with Acts 18, that's when Paul was in Corinth. You know, Acts is telling the story of how the early church was birthed, and a lot of it centers around Paul's missionary journeys. So uh, in Acts 18, it talks about when Paul was in Corinth. He worked as a tent maker when he was there. He also obviously worked when he was planning the church in Ephesus and raising up leaders there. Um, so these two verses, the, the ones I just read to you and then the ones in, in, in verse 18, they're oftentimes seen as Paul being extravagantly generous in that he worked with his hands to make enough money so he could preach and do other real ministry, right? Air quotes. That's normally how we look at it, which even if that was the extent of it, that, that's pretty generous and pretty cool that he did whatever was necessary, worked a manual labor job during the day so that he could support himself and preach the gospel at night and weekends, right? So, um, but it's actually deeper than that, and, and there's actually more to see. A closer examination shows that this is not entirely accurate, and it doesn't capture the truly extravagant nature of Paul's generosity. So even if he was just working himself to the bone in order so that he could preach the gospel and not be a burden to the, the fledgling church there, that would be pretty cool, but it's, it's even bigger than that. So verse 34 says this. I'm going to read it to you again. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. It's real interesting. Paul didn't just work so that he could cover himself on this missionary journey. He was working so that he could cover the needs of the guys that were with him also doing the work, also preaching the gospel. And so it wasn't just a self-serving, okay, I'll, I'll do enough of this manual labor so that I can eat and I can have lodging and all the things that it costs to, to live. He's also covering costs for other guys. So that's huge, not just his needs, but the needs of others. Verse 35, I'm going to read it to you again. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Verse 35 flips our whole paradigm and assumption about Paul's working with his hands. We normally assume Paul gave up the comfort and the status of a Pharisee. Remember? He was a highly respected, highly educated guy. He essentially had a cush position in his, the, the, the way the social structure was. He was, he was up towards the top. He, he wouldn't have had to work real hard. He could have just, you know, kind of, he's kind of had a, a white-collar situation and, and even more respect than that. And so he gave that up. Uh, we, we normally assume that he gave up the comfort and status of, of being a Pharisee to work manual labor jobs so that he could do ministry. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that him working his job was ministry. Do you see the difference? Most of the time we think Paul worked with his hands so he could do ministry. Okay, he did the, he did the tent making so that he could have enough money so then, then he could go and do ministry. Paul flips that on its head and he makes very clear in this set of verses that the working itself was ministry. He didn't, he didn't bifurcate. He didn't divide those two things away from each other. He saw himself as much on mission, sitting there mending tents or whatever that looked like, as he was at the synagogue preaching. Interesting, isn't it? We must see our work as ministry. Paul worked side by side with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, and they became some of his most trusted and solid disciples. If you read later Acts 18, 1 through 4, it tells us he worked with them. They all had the same trade. And so they were working together. And um, he, he worked with them. He was discipling them. And those two became two of his most trusted and solid disciples. 
so he, he would work with them, and he would go to the synagogues on every Sabbath to preach to both Jews and Greeks about Jesus. And so he's doing ministry while he's working. He's training and discipling people. He's talking about Jesus right in the midst of the marketplace as he's doing business, as he's doing working with his hands, whatever it is, everywhere he is, all the time, the name of Jesus is upon Paul's lips. He sees himself on mission in every context. He has no separation in the way he thinks about it. It wasn't, I do this job so I can do ministry, right? The job to Paul was ministry. And he trains some pretty stellar disciples while they're all making tents together. Pretty cool. In verse 35, Paul deals with our motive for work. Now, of course, it's Paul who instructs Timothy later in 1 Timothy 5.8 that, that the Christian should provide for the needs of his family. And if you think about that, that is actually a generous act uh, and something that many people choose not to do. But... Here we also see that generosity should not be a byproduct of work, but a motivation for why we work. I want to say that again because I think it's really important. Here what we see in verse 35 and the way Paul describes this is that generosity should not be a byproduct of work, but it should be a motivation for why we work. Paul is on a missionary expedition, and he sees working a job as a part of that mission. He also says he wanted to model for those he was discipling that by working hard, he could provide for his own needs and experience the joyous privilege of generosity. And he ends it with a quote from the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than receive. And so, again, what I said from the beginning of this series is, there's, there's so many ways to go at this idea of generosity, but, but really I'm, I'm taking perhaps even the, the whole first half of the entire series to deal with the fact that motives matter. There's all kinds of gimmicks and shticks and ways that we can, in, in, a, in, in a convincing way, try to bend people's arms, or there's, there's emotional ploys that I've seen used before that can get people to give bigger offerings. That's not the point of this sermon series. We're not talking about generosity because we're trying to affect some type of dollar amount. It has everything to do with our hearts and how it is we are positioned towards God. Generosity, according to the Lord Jesus and a few other heavy hitters like Paul and Peter and James, you know, guys that kind of know what they're talking about, John, uh, these guys seem to think that our generosity or lack thereof was a really good way for us to understand what's going on in our heart for real, right? Because most of us assume, let's be honest, that our heart is pure, that our motives are pure, that we're doing the right things, right? We're not normally that good at, at assessing ourselves. So one of the real great ways and kind of an easy way to see, okay, what's going on as far as how bent my heart is in gratitude towards God? How much is it that I am consumed with the beauty of God's grace and, and the fact that he has saved me and the fact that he's called me to be on mission? How engaged am I in all that? Generosity. Whether or not we live in a generous way. Whether or not our thoughts and our hearts are bent towards generosity or whether it's always a wrestling match, right, when it comes to giving. That helps us to figure out kind of where we're at. So, um, we see in verse 35 that uh, generosity should not be a byproduct of work. I think that's a lot of times the way we think about it. Like, okay, yeah, right, we all got to work, get a job, make some money, 
Hopefully there's some money left after the bills are paid, and then I'll look at that and decide, right, is there some room for generosity? Paul seemed to be saying that I wanted to model for you that by working hard, he, then he ties it directly to that then you're going to be able to be a blessing to those that are struggling. So for Paul, at the beginning of the whole process of heading to work or trying to figure out how he's going to get a job while he's on this missionary expedition, what he's thinking about, yeah, I mean, his needs are in the mix. He knows that he's going to have to eat, you know, to survive and have some place to get out of a storm if it comes. But it seems like right there in the middle of the motives and up towards the top is this idea that, you know, I have this ability to work hard, and that's going to give me the ability to be generous. It's in the motives from the beginning. It's part of why he's working, which is why I'm saying generosity shouldn't be just a byproduct of work or a, a maybe if it happens, but a motivation for why we go to work. Why is it that we pour ourselves into that? Paul is on a missionary expedition, and he sees working a job as a part of the mission. He also says he wanted to model for those he was discipling that by working hard, he could provide for his own needs and experience the joyous privilege of generosity. So praise God for that. I'm glad that was his attitude. Um, I, in thinking through this, I was trying to think of, of a real-life example that I'm aware of. And, and I, I know a guy who was really successful in business for a lot of years. And then the Lord took him through a long, dry season where it, it seemed like to him, and, and if outside looking in, I, I would agree that the anointing that he had once walked in where literally ideas and connections and, and opportunities would, I mean, would just bump into him. Like you wouldn't even have to go look for it. Just, people would seek him out with money-making opportunities. That all that would just come to him. And, and during this dry season, it was like that all that just stopped. It dried up. Uh, and, and for a long time, he felt like he was wandering in the desert. And it was in desperation that, that he pressed in and he began to inquire of the Lord what was going on. And uh, through that process, Jesus led this brother to an understanding that his gift for business was for God's glory and for the furthering of his kingdom, that that should be the primary motivation for all that he does. When he considers, should I exert effort towards this deal, what he should be thinking about is, what is this going to cost and what is it going to open up potentially to be a blessing to God's kingdom, to further more gospel ministry? And, and it's, it's really uncanny that almost from the moment that he got this right in his heart, that he came to this understanding. It was literally like the faucet turned back on. And, and even, I mean, right now, he's got people calling out of nowhere with opportunities that seem almost too good to be true. It'd, it'd be one of those things where you'd like, you know, yeah, right. But then look into it and find out, yeah, it is right. It's totally right, because God's just setting him up again. Uh, and, and really, God's proven himself true, because, you know, when stuff comes that, you couldn't have, no matter how hard you worked for it, no matter how hard you networked, no matter how many people you smiled at, right, or sh hands you shook, you could have never come up with this deal. When that kind of stuff happens, um, it's, sometimes it's God showing up and saying, hey, I'm in this. So it's pretty cool, actually. Um, but all that's going on, again, and, and it's because of this understanding. The key, I believe, for him is, is when I hear him talk about what's going on and, and the success of his current ventures, Every time what I hear him say is, this is going to make a lot of money to build God's kingdom. Anytime he's in anything, there's this instant connection to what he's doing that God wouldn't be bringing this opportunity if it wasn't to generate the funds that are necessary to propel gospel ministry forward. Um, and it, it does cost money to do ministry. I'm, I'm not sure. There's all, you know, it's free for us to go out and talk about Jesus, 
However, there's all kinds of things that do cost money. Um, there's missionaries to be supported. There's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, and, and there's a lot more things we could do um, if we had more resources. And so it's, it's just cool to watch that process happen. And what God did with him, God in his mercy, did not let him have success without the right motive. It was a merciful act of God to take that blessing off of him and to make him get to the place where he was desperate enough to press into God and to find out, okay, what's going on here? Because you guys, you guys know as well as I do, human nature first, and this, this is what this guy went through, you know, it seems like things aren't happening, it seems like the wheels are kind of falling off, right? Every, things you used to, that used to work that you did, like it was just clockwork, and, and all of a sudden now that's not happening. First human reaction typically isn't to fall on your knees before Jesus and, and ask for his help. The first typical reaction is, oh, well, I've got to work harder, right? So you kind of bear down on it and go hard and, and find out, wow, I'm now triple exhausted, and that didn't work either. So you kind of find yourself... Uh, you know, laying with your tongue hanging out, like, okay, Jesus, I'm ready for help now, you know? <laughs> Anybody ever been there? Just me. Am I the only one that's ever done it in my own strength I thought I was awesome? Oh, okay, all right. The rest of you, obviously, just were born yesterday or something. Okay. Um, well, praise God. I'm glad that God had enough mercy and love for him that he didn't let him have success without the right motive. Um, because to have, to have what the world would consider success and your heart not be right is actually... Um, is actually walking that wide path towards destruction. So I'm thankful that God will do that. To summarize what I'm pulling from that is we should work hard, we should make money, but if we have met the Lord Jesus, then our motive for doing these things should be others first and ourselves last. This is, this is the ethos, this is the mindset, this is the heart attitude you see that Paul had after an encounter with the Lord Jesus. And the reality is, if we're going to follow Jesus, think about it, the perfect Lamb of God who gave his life in the most extravagantly generous display of love and of sacrifice in all of history, then we're going to have to be an extravagantly generous people. If we're going to follow that guy, if we're going to follow perfect God-man Jesus who never sinned once and then stood in and took the punishment for all of us and every other sinner throughout all of history. If, if we're going to follow a guy that kind of capped off his, his time here on earth with the most generous act in all of history, giving himself completely and totally over uh, if, to, to a punishment he didn't deserve on the behalf of others who did, if that's who we worship, if that's who we serve, if that's who we're following... Uh, there's, there's almost no escaping, and we shouldn't want to, this idea that we're going we're gonna to have to be a generous people. But let's be honest. You, you guys want to be honest with me for a minute? We, we, you want to do fake church? You guys vote. You want to be honest? You want to do fake church? All right, let's be honest. Okay. Sometimes being generous is difficult, isn't it? Sometimes it is. Sometimes the thought of giving any of our resources of time, talent, or finances can bring with it an internal battle. Because the reality is we need that time, right? We need that money. There's a long list we could be using those things for. And so when it's time to worship God with our tithes and offerings or a situation comes up and someone needs help, 
Sometimes there is a real fight going on inside of our hearts and our heads about what to do. Sometimes it's not as easy as it should be, right? We think about Paul and his conversion on the road to Damascus, the fact that he encounters the risen Lord Jesus, and the Bible says immediately his life became about one thing, explaining that this Christ, this Jesus, that he is the Son of God. He started marching right up to the synagogue. Do you understand that this is the guy the synagogue sent to go get all the Christians and round them up and stop the heresy? Well, the next time they see Saul, who's now Paul, he's coming to say, guys, check it out. Crazy. I was wrong. Actually, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah we were looking for. And it says that he continued to grow in strength. God continued to anoint him, and he was, he was confounding those that were arguing against that. And, and you don't see, there is no throttle back from that point forward. It's a constant throttle forward in the life of Paul, him laying himself down continually for the rest of the time that he breathes air upon the planet. He is about one thing, and it is pushing forward the truth of the beautiful gospel. And so, he is generous with his time, Right? He lays his whole life down. He's generous with his talents. He's got a great thinking mind. God's blessed him with the ability to, to reason, to go into a bunch of different contexts and take the message of Christ and be able to relate it to people. So he's, he's using the gifts God gave him. And, and he's generous with finances because all through the time, man, he's working with his hands, doing whatever he's got to do to raise enough money to not only support his own needs on the missionary journey, but to bring as many other people along as he can. Come on, come on, Titus. Come on, Timothy. You know, come on, Silas. Come on, guys. I'm gonna, come, come with me. Don't worry. I'll pay for your lodging. I got your food. Don't worry about it. Come on. Come learn how to talk about Jesus with a bunch of different kind of people. Come with me. Let me disciple you and teach you how to be a missionary for the cause of Christ. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but honestly, it's hard sometimes. Harder than it should be. Paul's response, I believe, is, why did I go back through that? for the sake of, of, of boring you with repetition. I want to make sure we have a clear picture because here's, here's the premise I'm laying for us. Paul's response to meeting the risen Lord Jesus is the right response. Now, that is not to say the details of Paul's response is the right response. It does not mean that every person is called to go you know, jump on a sailboat and go plant churches throughout Asia Minor. Okay, right? There's going to be variance to the details, but as far as our heart is concerned, as far as what it is we spend the rest of our life in, in, in focus upon and as our highest priority, it should be upon the spreading of that beautiful gospel uh, that saved us, that took us from death to life. Uh, something happened to my friend Paul when he met Jesus, uh, and the question is, is, is it evident when we look um, at where our focus is, when we look at what it is we spend our resources on. Um, is there an extravagantly generous, obvious lifestyle that flows out of the fact that Jesus has impacted us with his beautiful glory? The question is, how do we get to the point where we truly believe? Get the, how do we get to the point where we truly believe it is more blessed to give than get? Right, Because we all know the verse. We know Jesus said it. We know Paul quoted it in Acts. We know it's fun to say at Christmas time. And, and yes, right? Like, you know, when you're a kid, what, Christmas morning is about what? Presents. Get them in my hand so I can tear the paper off. Is there more? When we go into Grandma's house, there's more there, right? So you're very, very self-focused. Hopefully, 
as you grow up, begin to have kids of your own and stuff, it becomes cool for you to watch the kiddos open presents. So you, do, you can begin to understand this principle to some degree, but the, the, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a localized event. Let's just make it a million bucks. Most of you today, is, is it easy for you to say, it would be, I would be so much more stoked to give a million bucks than to get a million bucks? Ooh, all of a sudden we're not talking about Christmas presents. It ain't slippers and remote control cars, right? Take the number up and all of a sudden it starts to, hmm, maybe reveal something. I got to be honest. Um, I want to all the time truly believe I would be more blessed. It would be more fun. I would have more joy giving away a million dollars than getting a million dollars. But I'm going to need the Holy Spirit's help for that. I realize you guys are all there because essentially this church is made up of monastic monks that have totally rid themselves of all materialism. <laughs> and you guys have pretty much ascended the spiritual ladder to, to the highest rung. But um, I'm just trying to be honest about where I'm at. So there you go. Um, but the question is, how do we get to the point where we truly believe it is more blessed to give than to get? I think we can get there. I believe Paul believed it. I believe Paul actually believed that. It wasn't just some stuff he said. It wasn't just a quote he threw out. He wasn't just trying to make a point. How, why do I think Paul believed it? Because if you look at his life, he lived it. He didn't just say it, right? This brother spent himself to be a blessing to others. And, and, and the primary way he was a blessing to others was getting them the beautiful hope of the gospel. He made his life about God's glory and the good of others. So how do we get there? That we really truly believe we'll be more blessed, we'll have more joy when we give than when we get. How do we become the cheerful givers that Paul tells us elsewhere the Lord loves and delights in? Paul tells us elsewhere the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He delights in it. How do we get there? How do we get there that, that giving is not this arm-twisting internal monologue battle, well, I could use that there, but how do we get to the point where there's this this default mode in our hearts and heads that we have totally bought into this premise that the Bible is trying to give us, that as givers we will have more joy than takers or getters, right? How do we get there? How do we become cheerful? I want to read you some more of Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian pastors. So part of what I read you was, was uh, 34 and 35. Um, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to read you some more of Paul's farewell address. So he had called the elders, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house? solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that the bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. A few verses later in this same farewell address, Paul tells these men, he says to them, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
What do we see here? How do we become people? How do we become people of extravagant generosity? We have to become people who truly believe our life is not our own. Do you hear that in Paul's farewell to these Ephesians? Part of what he says to these brothers, the reason they end up weeping and clinging to him at the end of this set of verses is because he, this is, he tells them, guys, you're probably not going to see my face again. I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm not totally sure what's going to happen there, but every single person I've talked to about that has any prophetic utterance in them whatsoever tells me I'm going to be bound and gagged when I get there, so it's probably not going to be good. I'm probably going to die when I get there, but I can't stop. I'm compelled to continue in this mission that God has given me to get the truth of the gospel to as many people as possible. A total disregard for the fact that he's been warned over and over again, don't go there, Paul. Something bad's going to happen to you. But he feels himself continually compelled by the Spirit. There is this idea that what God has called him to, to have the truth of the gospel upon his lips, to spend his life so that as many people as possible can hear that there's hope in Jesus. He's driven by that, and it caused him to count his life as not worthy of protecting when he stacks it up against the potential of a few more people hearing about Jesus if he continues and pushes on. He realizes, how is Paul, how did he get to this place where generosity is a disposition for him, where it's an automatic for him, where, where the motives of all he does, that generosity is mixed into the factors that he puts together when he's making a decision. How did he get there? He believes his life is not his own. He understands that he's been purchased by the blood of Christ, and he revels in it. It's joyous for him. He's thankful. He understands there's no greater destiny possible for a human than to do what it is that God made that person to do. There's no greater joy possible. There's no greater purpose possible for anybody. There's no greater experience to be had. Do you believe that? I need you to shake yourself. If you've zoned out, if you're thinking about the next thing that's going on, I need you to bring it back here and just ask yourself this question. Do you believe the best possible experience you can have in this vapor of a life that you're living? This, the Bible says this fogging of a mirror and you're gone when you consider the eternity timeline? This is nothing. Do you really believe the best possible experience you can have while you're here is to do absolutely everything God made you to do? Have you bought that all the way? Because to what degree we haven't, we will not be generous. To what degree we're not sure whether what God has asked us to do is the best thing for us, we will hold back. We will reserve resources for ourselves. We will have a plan B. Because if this whole serving God thing doesn't work out the way I'm hoping it does, well, then I can run backwards and I still got a stash that I can go this way. Right? Because good Lord, why would God want me to preach the gospel in Cincinnati where it's, it's like a swamp in the summer and freezing bitter cold in the winter, right? I could have picked a better locale. I'm not bitter about it. I'm not. I mean, Paul, Paul was shipwrecked. All I got to do, as soon as I'm, you know, as soon as I feel like maybe there's a twinge of like, come on, Lord, there's tropical places all over this earth you made that are beautiful, and, and we're here. You know what I mean? As soon as that thought process starts to happen, all I got to think about is my man Paul, shipwrecked, stoned, um, ends his life in, in martyrdom for Christ, and I realize that uh, I'm a sissy and I need to be quiet and be so thankful that God would let me be a part of his redemptive plans uh, in the earth. And so that's the right way to think. We got to believe our life is not our own. If we belong to God, if we belong to God, purchased by his precious blood, 
If that's true, then the air in our lungs and the blood in our veins and the strength of our bodies are all his possessions. Here's one you're going to like. You don't have any money. You don't have any time. You don't have any gifts or talents. You own nothing. All that you are belongs to him. That's why Paul uses the language over and over. Woo, you like that one, I can tell. You guys remember, I can see your faces, okay? We don't have the super sweet setup where it's so dark out there I can't see you. So I can actually see your expression. So just keep that in mind, all right? Good, awesome. Keeps the connection there. Yeah, but I mean it. And even though there were some scowls on that, I'm sticking by it. You don't own anything. Do you understand that this is not just hyperbole on, on Paul's part, right? We were purchased with the blood of Christ, man. We had an evil taskmaster that wanted to drag us to hell forever. He was our master and he owned us, sin and death. Satan, the ringleader, he had us, man. And Jesus laid down everything and paid the price to have us. He's our master now. He owns me. And I am so thankful that's true. Because I could be dead still in my sins, man. I could be hopelessly blind. I could have no idea what life is really about. I could be totally stuck in the same place so many people are thinking that this miserable 85, 90 years is all that there is. I could have no idea that there is a hope for a beautiful eternity spent with a God that loves me so much he'd put himself on the line to have me. I could be stuck there, and I'm not. I have a master who I, it's so joyous to serve him because he served me first. Because he went to the cross first for me. Because he showed me what humility is. He showed me what sacrifice is. He showed me what love is. And he showed me that he deserves my worship. He deserves all of me. And he bought me with his blood. So it doesn't even really matter what I think about the rest of that. I'm his. I don't have any money. It's his. I don't have any time. It's his. The gifts and talents, whatever I think I might possibly be good at, which is a real short list, but it's his. And he has the right to demand of me any of that at any time for his glory and for his purposes. The beauty is he's a master that is not about just just squeezing out everything he can from those that he has bought with his blood. He's not just about taking everything from us as many wicked masters are. He is a master who, his, his joy, he has tied his joy to our joy. See, he, he's not just a master, he also lets us call him father. He also thinks of us as children. And so not only did he buy us with his precious blood, but he grafted us in and brought us into his family. He's not a master that holds us off at arm's length and just, just gets everything out of us that he can. He's a loving master that draws us in close. He says, come, come sit with me. Let's, let's talk. Come be close to me. I love you. The reason I bought you is because I want you near me. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. Is that not beautiful, friends? Does that not cause something in you? Does it not make you want to lay down everything for his glory and so that others may know that that's possible? This was Paul's reaction to meeting the risen Lord Jesus. And I think anything short of it is an improper reaction. I'll leave that for you to judge. Understanding that all of who we are, that we belong to Jesus, 
It is that conviction that led Paul to admonish the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11, that we have been made rich so that we can be generous on every occasion. Out of this understanding, out of this relationship that Paul had with Jesus, out of this deep conviction that we belong to him, it, it made him understand this fact that in 2 Corinthians 9-11, he told us that we have been made rich so that we can be generous on every occasion. Now, if you haven't found something that you didn't like thus far, this may have been it. I may have finally got something that you didn't like. Uh, because you might say, well, hold on, preacher, fella. Uh, I've got you right there because I happen to have a bank statement that will prove to you that I'm not rich. So that verse doesn't apply to me. I don't need to be worried about being generous on every occasion because I haven't been made rich. So tic-tac-toe, right? First of all, what I would say to you, dear friend, is that you, if you have access to safe drinking water, then you are richer than 13% of the world's population. 13% of the world's population literally don't have access anywhere to safe drinking water. Um, I can't remember all the details, but if you have a fridge, it puts you in a really high percentage of, of the richest people in the world. Like if you have a way to keep your food cool, um, if you have uh, a structure that you live in that is not going to fall apart if a storm comes, you're doing a whole lot better than a very large percentage of people on the planet. So just right off the bat, we should always challenge our own premise when we decide that we're not we haven't been made rich or we haven't been, been, been blessed so that we can be generous on every occasion. Do you understand? Maybe you didn't even catch it. Maybe you didn't push back because you didn't hear what I said. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, here's what he says. You've been made rich so, you've been made rich equals, Christian, so that you can be generous on every occasion. Anybody mad yet? Did you miss it the first time but now you're upset? That's, so what he's talking about is we've been blessed We've been put in the position we've been put in so every time we can be generous. It's a big call. We're richer than we think, so that's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, if you are a Christian, you are rich in Christ, and so you do have something to give. I do realize, as much as I make comparison to those, it's not that hard for us to, to think about it if, if we're if we're open to the idea that there are folks with much less material resources than most of us have in this room. Um, but even if it's true that you're completely tapped out when it comes to material resources because of what Christ has done in us, because of the gifts that come, because of the access we have to God the Father through Christ, we are rich in him, and so we do always have something to give. Anything we have to give is only possible because of the gospel, but let's just think about it. Somebody's struggling. You may not have two nickels to rub together in order to help financially in the situation, but here, what are some things you do have to offer? Because Christ has loved you so well and he's taught you what love really looks like, you can actually really offer love to that person. You can actually really encourage them. You can actually really weep with them when they're struggling. You can actually really mourn with them. You can hug them, and tears can come flying out of your eyes because you're feeling what they feel because you actually, actually love them because Jesus has taught you what love looks like, because Jesus taught you that love means I'm not going to stay afar off 
and, and just look at you struggle. I'm going to come, and I'm going to get right down in the mess, and I'm going to suffer with you because I love you, right? So, I, okay, you, you, don't ha- you don't have money to give. You can love them, and I'll tell you what, a lot of times that's rare to find somebody that's got some money to give. You can offer to pray. We, we trivialize this. We treat it like a trite answer. Listen, friends, that's only because we forget very quickly what a privileged prayer is. The fact that we, clay feet, sinful humans, get to communicate directly to the God of the universe, and he has gone so far as to say that he will hear us and answer is incredible. And it's only possible because Jesus mended the brokenness that stood between us and God. So because of the gospel, we can offer to pray for somebody and it will matter. We can pray in faith and know that God will hear us. We can bring their needs before God. As a Christian, we can go to the throne room of God Almighty on behalf of somebody. I would say that's helpful. I would say that's something to give. Notice any of these things that we can give are only possible because they've been given to us. Hope. Guys, sometimes people just need a real reason to have hope because hopelessness leads you to a really dark place. And I know some of you know that, but when you get down, you get beat down to the point where you've literally decided, I don't think it's ever going to get better. I don't think there is anybody that cares. I don't think there is anybody that will help me. I don't think I have a shot. It's over. When you actually begin to believe that, of how much value is it when someone will come along to you, grab you by the shoulders and look you in your face and say, no, that's not true. There is hope. Here's why. It may not be, you, if all you're looking at is like the resources you've got working and like what you can give to the situation as the person that's struggling, yeah, you're right. <laughs> It probably is hopeless, but what can we point to, friends? Where can we take them? We can take them to the word of God that says that God has made them and loves them, knows right where they're at, how many hairs are on their head, and that he has not forsaken them and he won't, that they can turn to him, that he will receive them, that he will forgive them of their sins, that he will heal them. We can always, in every, are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for the fact that no matter how much we struggle or we find someone else in the midst of struggling, we can offer hope because of Jesus? Always, and we don't have to be fake about it. We don't have to conjure up a smile. We don't have to make something up. There is actually really tangible, real hope because Jesus is the king of everything. Because he has the power to back up what he's promised. And he said we can come to him. And he told stories like the prodigal son. Somebody that messed it up real bad. And their hopelessness was the result of their own stupidity. And yet God's faithfulness and mercy shines through again. He's there to receive them. There is hope because God is real. There is hope because Jesus is king over everything. There is hope because God has given us his word and it's true every single time. Because of the gospel, we can offer people love, we can offer them prayer, we can offer them hope and a whole host of other things. And so you are never, ever without resources to meet needs, to meet people in the midst of their struggling, to be a blessing to them. We are rich because of Christ. 
And all the things I just listed, I would much rather have than a bunch of money to throw at somebody. Because you know what? You can do that. And if, if their heart's broken, if they're still hopeless, if they're not loved, if they, if they don't know Jesus, then the same symptomatic things that drove them to the, the, the misery to begin with is still going to happen. What they need is to be loved. What they need is someone to speak hope to them. What they need is someone to pray with them and lead them toward the love of the Father. That's what they need. And we can offer it, friends. Christians, disciples, Jesus followers. We're rich today because of him. Because he's given freely. He's opened up his treasure chest and said, here, kids, I want you to spread this around. Have fun. And when you start to think about it that way, you start to think about King Jesus opening up, opening up his treasure room and saying, come on, kids, come get everything out of here you can. Come grab handfuls of this stuff, and I want you to take it where you work. Take it where you go to school. Take it to the broken folks in your family. Take all these good things I'm giving you. Don't keep it for yourself. Here, take it and give it to somebody. You start to, you, can, you, can you imagine it in your mind, how fun that is? Right? Because it's not, it's not the little bit I hoarded up and saved myself and got it in my sock. Oh, and I don't have to give it up. When we understand what we're doing, when we understand what really God has called us to, it's I just want you to channel. I want you to be a conduit. I just want you to be a funnel that I can dump the goodness of me into, all the gifts and the treasures from me into, and you disperse them in the world. As, as his kids, man, we get to be messengers of hope. As his kids, we get to, we get to go into this world and, and pray for those that are hurting and broken. We get to disperse the love of God into the world. What a blessed people we are. How rich we find ourselves today. Thank you, Jesus. We could not have that kind of relationship. God could not allow us to be in the process of him being a blessing to the world if it were not for the beauty and truth of the gospel. Every single one of us, because of our sin, every single one of us, because we are imperfect, found ourselves separated from God without the incredibly and extravagantly generous rescue mission of sending Jesus Christ to come into the world, live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, and then rise from the grave. Without that beautiful provision, we could not be involved. We would have no hope to offer anyone else because we would have no hope ourselves. It is only because of the gospel that we get in on this, that we get to be generous, that we get to even put ourselves through a process of, of reading the word and, and, and analyzing by God's spirit where we land on this spectrum of of extravagant generosity. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's the thing. There's this taboo. There's this, there's this reticence among many people that have been called by God to teach the scriptures to ever say the word money in a sermon or ever imply that people should be generous or giving. And it's like, if, if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to talk about the implications of being rescued from an eternity separated from God and, 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 and all of the blessings that come with being grabbed by God Almighty, taken out of the depths of sin and despair, brought into a life of light and love and hope, the main deal is the fact that if you're given that, you're expected to just, just pay it forward, man. Generosity comes out of having been given it, Right? When you experience incredible grace and mercy, what happened to Paul is what should happen to every human being that experiences 
the incredible grace and mercy of God. It should change us in such a way that all the way down at the cellular level, man, we just become people that are looking to give, to bless, to love. Because that's what our master is like. That's what our king is like. And in Romans 8, it says that what God is doing with us, there is a continual process that he is conforming us into the image of his son. Is that exciting for you? If that's right, if that's true, then what the scripture is saying is that God is working a process in us that tomorrow we should think, speak, look, and treat other people more like Jesus does than we did today. Is that good? That's good. That's good for me because there, there was points yesterday where I didn't do that good at that. And so I'm really thankful for the hope that God's not done with me and he's going to keep working on me and that I'm going to be more loving and more generous and more gracious and merciful and more prone to run to God in prayer in a time of trouble in my own life or someone else's than, than, to, than to try to do it myself. I'm, I'm going to be more like Jesus as I continue on in this thing. Uh, and I get to offer that good news to other people. How did Paul become extravagantly generous? Here's the question. Was Paul just an all-around super nice and awesome guy? Right? Because some of you, some of you might, you might want to blame a lack of generosity just on kind of like a personality bent. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just not that nice. I don't even know if that's okay to think and or like be kind of, you know, the way you run your life. But anyways, the bottom line is, even if you thought that, I'm just not, I'm not that generous because I just don't really mess with people a whole lot or whatever your deal was. The question you got to ask yourself is, was Paul, Paul ended up extravagantly generous. Is that because he was an all-around super nice and awesome guy? That he was just, just naturally just a, just a cuddle bear. You know the kind, right? Super amiable, walks in a room, everybody's put at ease. Was he that guy? No, he was the guy that was so hardcore that Jesus caught him in the middle of a mission to go kill people simply because they loved him. Okay? Simply, Paul was on his way to kill people because they loved Jesus. And then something happened. What, what, what are we answering? How did Paul become extravagantly generous? It wasn't a natural bent for him. Um, apparently, you know, he was into killing people and putting them in jail. That was more his thing rather than bless them or, or work hard so that he could be generous towards them. That was, you know, kind of his angle, right? So, it wasn't a personality thing. He's on his way to kill people that love Jesus, and then something happens. He met Jesus. Saul meets Jesus. So he's on his way to do the exact opposite of being generous, and he encounters the risen Lord of glory, and he went from taking the lives of Christ's followers to literally giving his life to follow Christ. Did you, do, you, do you see that? He was on his way to take the lives of people who were following Christ. And he ends up, after meeting the risen Lord, being a guy that goes all the way to giving his, literally giving his life in order to follow Christ. What happened? How did Paul become that guy? He met Jesus. He met Jesus. So what does that mean? <laughs> That's how you get that way. It's getting close with the master. It's speaking with the master. It's an encounter with the master. And so if, if generosity is a struggle for you, if you're upset right now, if the, the very, if the very second that you caught on to the fact that this sermon was addressing generosity, whether or not you are, 
right? Um, issues surrounding giving. If you kicked right into the church just wants my money and all that kind of jazz, you, you, have, you have to look at the implications of this. You have to ask yourself, what's going on? Because when Paul the Christian killer, Saul the Christian killer, met Jesus, he became Paul the follower of Christ all the way to his death. Spent the rest of his life sacrificing everything so as many people as possible could hear about Jesus. Became an extravagantly generous Christ follower. And so if you sit today with this idea, but yeah, you know, I love Jesus, but you know, the church doesn't need my money. I, I, I just want to say the scriptures should cause a red flag to fly up. I'm just saying, right, I don't want you to be able to leave here with that attitude and somebody not love you enough to say, stop, because you're probably in sin and you're in trouble and you need an encounter with the master. Whoo, this guy's supposed to find a nice way to tell me to give. Look, man, it's, that's not what we're doing. I, honestly, Jesus Christ himself has supplied for the needs of this church from the beginning, okay? So your generosity, one way or the other, God's going to get his mission done, this has to do with you and your heart, right? I, I don't care what the offering is after the extravagant sermon series. It doesn't matter to me because I trust God, and I know he's going to provide what we need. What I'm dealing with is your heart. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your head? When giving comes up, do you bristle like a cat that had water thrown on it, right? Or are you, or are you of the mind when, when the paycheck comes, is, is something about your, your whole thought process, and that is, thank you, God, for blessing me. How is it you want me to be a blessing with this? Does that come up in the way you think? Because from the way Paul's life went after an encounter with King Jesus, it seems that the only right response is that all of everything we have become on the table. As far as our hearts are concerned, there should, what, what right do we have to hold anything back? when we've been bought with the perfect, precious blood of our Savior King. In Acts 9, where we read about Paul's conversion, verse 22 gives us the summary of how he spends the rest of his life after meeting Jesus. It says this, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus was the Christ. Paul literally pours out the rest of his existence upon the planet for one goal, proving that this Jesus was the Christ. That included how he worked, when he worked, what he worked for, his time. He, he did not consider his life his own. And that's why generosity was not a problem for this brother. It wasn't even a question. He knew all he had belonged to God. And he was just so thankful <laughs> that God would give him an opportunity to give that he never balked at the fact that, um, that it would be asked of him. The truth is God will not be satisfied with offerings of money, time, or talent. What he wants is you. Aren't you glad? God will not be satisfied with money, time, or talent. What he wants is you. If God is the master of your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole life, then anything you give is only placing something 
in the hands of its rightful owner. Guys, I know it's hot, and I know, I know it's been kind of long, but please just hear this. I'm going to say it one more time. If God is the master of your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole life, then anything you give is only placing something in the hands of its rightful owner. It belongs to him anyways. Doesn't that remove the internal struggle? That, that thing that half of us owned up to, right? That when it's time to give, sometimes there is that, but I don't want to, right? But when we understand this principle, that everything we are belongs to Jesus, that everything we have is already his, it takes, where is the battle? Right? Instead of being somebody that's giving something up to, to some greater cause, really, I'm, I'm, I'm just the bank teller. Jesus say, hey, man, give him my money. <laughs> yes, sir, here it is, right? <laughs> hey, give, give me some of that time I've given you to live on this earth. Yes, yes, sir, what would you like me to do? Here I am, send me. Son, I'm here to collect on some of the gifts I've already put in you. Uh, I, I need you to help me get this done, get the gospel preached. Yes, sir, here I am. It's yours anyway. What are we talking about? All I need is directions, right? It changes it when we belong to him totally, and that's the reality. All that we are and all the resources with which we have been entrusted belong to our heavenly Father. When we really get that, when we truly believe it, extravagant generosity becomes a delight instead of a duty. We get joy, and King Jesus gets glory. Praise God. May we be a people who acknowledge that we are not our own. May we be a people who work hard and give freely because our King came and showed us the joy of living generously. And may we believe the truth that we have been made rich in more ways than we can count. And so we always have something to share. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that you don't allow us to skip over issues of generosity and stewardship. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you talked more about money and giving and finances than you did heaven and hell combined. I thank you, God, that you and your wisdom, you know that we have a very high propensity for turning things, material things and material desires into idols that we serve and worship. And so, God, I thank you that you've given us absolutely every weapon we need. We've, you've given us every hammer we need to crush into dust idols of materialism and consumerism, idols that would cause us to be uh, all about us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us enough to continually compel us, to draw us towards a life of generosity. I thank you, God, in doing that, you're not ever trying to take something from us, but you're always, every single time, you're trying to give something to us. You're trying to set us free to understand there's a reason you said it's better to give than to receive. God, I ask that you would stir in our hearts by your spirit that truth. Help us to see it for real. God, we don't want to just intellectually acknowledge that, well, Jesus said it, so I guess it's true. God, I ask you to really cultivate in our hearts and minds an understanding. I ask you to bring supernatural revelation to us that we can totally buy in so much so that we can explain it to other people passionately, that it is better to give than to get. And Lord, may we live our lives accordingly. And God, may we experience the incredible joy that comes in that. And may you be glorified by a group of people <laughs> that love you and love others and are willing to pour ourselves out for the sake of your name. 
that your gospel, God, that your beautiful hope may be known throughout the earth. Thank you, Lord, for setting us free from selfishness. Thank you, Lord, for setting us free from self-centeredness. Thank you, God, for setting us free from the blindness of of self-focus. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and all that you've done. Thank you, God. I ask you to continue this work in our hearts and minds by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, the truth sets us free. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.